Hello, everyone, and welcome to Design Untangled with me, Chris Mears, and Carla Lindarte. How are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? Yep, good, thanks. I'm very excited today because I don't know if you remember three years ago, but when we set up this podcast, we always wanted to talk about design in a wider sense and not just kind of making apps and websites. So we're joined by a very special guest today, Anna Lee, who's a senior interior designer. Hiya. Hi, how are you doing? Um, Welcome to the podcast. Normally how we start is if you could just give people a bit of kind of background about yourself and how you got into interior design. Yeah, sure. So I'm an interior designer for commercial workplaces. So I think very early on, I was really interested in just creating things and putting things together and how things worked to perform a certain function. So through my study and travels, I learned everything from textiles, interiors, graphics. I did a bit of letterpress to doing a bit of um, architecture, urban design and town planning in uni. So it kind of just all culminated and I landed my first position in Sydney as an interior designer that specialised in workplace and strategy. So it's kind of been a rolling stone ever since. That sounds really, really interesting. I I might, I'm going to ask you a question that might be a bit, maybe annoy you sometimes because people okay. think the interior designers are um, just people who can come and dress a room, you know, or decorate <laughs> a room. But I would like you to kind of like explain our audience as well. What What's the definition of interior design and why is it different from just someone who can, you know, buy some nice furniture and put it together in a room? Yeah, that I guess that's a very hotly top debated topic. Yeah, um, I can probably just I'll speak for myself. So um, I think my work is a very wide scope. Um, so only part of my job is to pick up furnishes, um, uh, sorry, furnishings, finishes, uh, design the aesthetics of the space. But realistically, the, the scope is much more working closely with the client to understand the user behaviors. Uh, goals, uh, values, aspirations, and working with the engineers and architects to make it come to life. Um, So we're kind of much more in tune with the construction detailing as well as helping the client realize their end goals. Bit of a bigger scope. So when a client kind of comes to you, is it quite common that they don't really have a a very clear idea what they're after are they looking for you to kind of give that to them or are there some clients who have a very clear vision of what they want but they don't necessarily know how to get there Mm, yeah that's an interesting one because I think um, people are becoming more and more educated about the workspace I mean even now um, with the whole experience of COVID people have a much greater uh, affinity to how they like to work where they like to work the kind of space that makes them most productive so people are a little bit more in tune with um, workspace design nowadays, I think, or I guess interiors or like when, when you go to a retail space, um, people are a lot more um, informed about what they want from a product or what they want from the shopping experience. So some some do know quite um, what they want to achieve, whereas others definitely need a bit more handholding and we would definitely help them through that process. And how do you um, balance, especially now that you mentioned COVID and new restrictions, mm. etc., how you balance like look versus function and obviously regulations? Yeah. So um, firstly, we must meet the function of design. If the design isn't functional, then <laughs> there's no value there. Um, but in terms of balancing the aesthetics of it, um, I think, that, yeah, 
it doesn't just if it doesn't work on a basic level and um, meet the regulations of social distancing and um, uh, being safe with redu reducing contact of spaces. So one one project that we're actually working on now, we're doing our best to make the whole thing contactless, so all the doors are automatic. Um, you've got a very much uh, integrated uh, app and uh, building management system that helps the user control the space without actually touching it. Um, you have uh, the impervious surfaces so they don't, uh, they're antimicrobial and those kind of things. If you educate your end user with it, they become a lot more comfortable in the space that they're using. I think with COVID, a big driver of it is fear, um, fear for personal safety, fear for wellness, and you, you just don't know. So part of that is trying to help create a comfortable environment. So that's, you, you know, um, like where we, like even for our own offices now, we're looking at um, re-entry and the whole one-way system is marked on the ground but then the whole uh everyone uses the warning tape you know it's like this horrible stuff that you just stick onto the ground yeah and you go to the supermarket and it's... Yeah, it's like a police line do not yeah, cross isn't exactly. it <laughs> like yeah. a few chalk bodies on horrible. the floor <laughs> yes exactly and so there's lots of different ways and you can achieve the same behavior without using those kind of visual cues um i had a quick one around sort of designing spaces for COVID. Are clients and companies seeing this as, I guess, a bit more tactical and something that's not going to be in place forever? Or are they designing these spaces with the view that this is going to be around for a long time and that is how the space needs to operate for, you know, 10, 20 years maybe? Yeah. I think that's, a, again, it's an interesting combination of both. It's There's still very mixed responses um, in the um, industry right now. Some people are quite hesitant of of making kind of any changes until they look at the more long term future. So they don't believe that COVID and social distancing will have a real place once I guess a um, vaccine is found or we manage to um, develop enough immunity for it to effectively go away. And to an extent, everyone's going to resume some kind of normalcy in terms of being able to go back to a common place of work. Um, of course, a lot of it are, is already driven by cost. I mean, everyone's vacated their offices and um, it's become almost redundant. So there's been a lot of cost cutting going on. So I guess the two in combination, you're not going to go into a, a scenario where you have these massive office spaces so that people can stay two metres away from each other. But like the example I gave before, it's uh, companies are a lot more aware of the need to uh, future-proof, risk-proof, have contingency planning. So definitely working in these kind of like contactless experiences using digital technologies um, and making sure that we can work both remotely and in the office in a very seamless experience is becoming a lot more predominant. So you mentioned some of the trends, um, like people becoming more aware of how they want a workplace to work. Um, I'm just curious if any of those trends aligned with sort of the way you're now designing spaces for COVID. Like, were there any aspects of that or are they completely separate things? Like, were people naturally wanting to to have more space around them and you know, get away from people a bit or is it just a completely different set of rules now? I don't know. I've um, never really actually thought about that. It's 
I, I guess human needs have been quite consistent um, uh, in general. Um, I mean, companies have for at least maybe the past 10 years been trying to cram everyone into as little space as possible and desk sharing and it's becoming quite, um, you get a little bit on top of each other and it's not too pleasant. But because now that we are able to almost balance it out, so a big problem with the open plan offices is that you don't give it, people enough privacy in in the workplace um, to do those uh, like uh, pr- private calls or like um, focus work or you, you might have some a report that you just want to churn out but you need some focus time. Uh, office really needs to be, or a modern office at least, should really accommodate all the different behaviours of work and not just oh, here's an open space and you make a way to work it. So it's giving the right typology. Yeah, it's like a trend of like having a little bit of privacy is coming back again. It's weird, isn't it, that that happens. I have a question around the technology. Like it's interesting that you're currently working in a contactless um, space because, you know, we've seen throughout the years like people trying to innovate around, you know, using voice, using gestures. Like we know the automotive industry trying to use gestures but they that technology is actually quite clunky still so I wonder if um you know based on your experience like first of all if the technology do you think is is actually quite good right now and if you are involving um actual customers in the testing of that technology at all um, yeah, I, I guess not so much testing of the technology because then uh, we usually have a technology specialist um, who would come on board and do all of that that kind of stuff um, and make it work technically speaking but as interior designers we work very closely to make sure that whatever technology is implemented actually adds value to the whether it be the um, customer experience the the everyday user experience or the outlook of the company. So it's not just technology for technology's sake. Um, otherwise, it becomes a redundant investment. So we work closely with the technology company and understand what they can achieve. And a big part of that is understanding the content as well. A big problem is, oh, like the client really wants to have these massive screens or they want to seem very technologically enabled, but they can't produce content fast enough to make it um, meaningful and valuable. So we work through like little problems like this uh, and making sure that the correct product is provided to the client and we accommodate it in the space in a kind of integrated way. And so some of this stuff obviously might take quite a while to to implement, mm. like, you know, actually building it and stuff. So is there any thing you do to iteratively test this stuff like is that even possible without actually physically sort of making the thing um no so we we would do prototypes maybe a smaller scale prototype um that's usually a big big aspect of that in just to make sure it works but um because we normally work with a specialist um we don't have to i guess um but yeah i mean Digital elements are really key, I think, for us in in two kind of ways. So the user side of things, the whole signature tech is really big. I don't know if that if you guys are involved in that kind of stuff with high end commercial clients, um, where the technology really plays a big part in communicating the 
the company's values, uh, what they're about, the transition of media. It's really about helping to provide a deeper user engagement and content delivery within a space. So it's not just screens, but like um, maybe adaptive personalization or, or proximity detection devices. That's really simple. Like it, you just arrive and then a sensor senses you, but then a screen greets you um, with a, a personalized message or like um, you getting notifications of a meeting, maybe the day before your meeting. And then you come to the client's um, client's welcome, uh, reception area and it's like a concierge rather than a traditional uh, clunky reception desk. And, you know, the receptionist is sitting on a barrier on the other side of, of you, but they come up and greet you and they already know who you are because they've sensed your um, arrival into the building or they, they know exactly what the schedule is and they welcome you with a, your favorite drink as you come into the office. So it, no, that would be yeah. nice. <laughs> Gin and tonic yeah. at 9 a.m. <laughs> but um, yeah, like there's so many things we're using and like on the more operational side of things, like we're talking with the contactless experience with the whole COVID situation now, we're so used to being you know, all of the, this kind of like digital tech where we're having web meetings and um, hosting um, workshops online. We, we can access people so quickly. You know, before we had to might travel like half an hour into London and and um, have a meeting. But now all of that you don't need to do. So when people go back into the office, it's important that the office has all of these technologies to continue to support these kind of interactions, even if you aren't in the office. I don't know how many offices right now can support that. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it, that not many co- companies would have the money and access to because it's similar to what happened with the retail spaces right a lot of people kind of created these connected store concepts and you know the screens the um you know that you put in the people you know in the changing rooms etc um but then only very few of them actually managed to do it at scale because it's ridiculously expensive so i wonder obviously that's not necessarily your your you know, your feel, but, you know, technology companies should try and make that more affordable because otherwise it's not, it's never going to happen for everyone. Um, trying to step back a little bit um, and change in the subject, I would be interesting to know, because obviously Chris and I are designers and our listeners are designers as well. Um, what's the process for, for an interior designer since like, as you get the brief, you know, what's the first thing you do? And then kind of like, you know, in, in very high level, what are the steps that you follow to actually deliver a project? Okay, so I, I guess in a very high level, there's maybe four steps that we go through. So firstly, we get the brief, but we review the brief. So question it, um, maybe challenge the status quo, and you try to understand what the client is really wanting out of it. So they might ask you that for a really funky space, but they're probably imagining a space with maybe feature colored walls but for someone else it might be slides and bean bags so we it's really important to clarify the brief and then we issue a reverse brief back to the client so it's almost like a formal document that we need the client to sign off to acknowledge that we both understand what their high level aspirations are um, and then if we need to do any more work we'll go through to do workshop and um, user engagement 
uh, exercises. So what do they, sorry, what do those workshops look like? Like what, what happens? So there's there? a whole series of different ones that we do. Um, we do say, for example, um, there's visual cards. So then we have a whole series of almost cue cards with um, images of spaces on them. Um, of different kind of spaces, different aesthetics, and then we ask the key um, stakeholders in the session to mark what they like and what they don't like about it. So that helps immediately um, erase kind of any vagueness in aesthetic differences. You know, people, people's, uh, how people relate to aesthetics and describe it using language is very different. So then we get an understanding of what, what that might look like. Um, we do exercises to understand their risks and aspirations. So say, for example, we do a uh, pre-mortem. So hypothetically speaking, if, if, you, uh, if we fitted out your office and a year later it fails miserably, what happened? And then you yeah, that's a classic mm, um, workshop yeah. as well. I've used that one before. <laughs> yeah, it, it's good because it does for most people. They haven't really been asked those kind of questions. Yeah. What else? We do a whole host of like day in the life of to understand their work work processes, especially in terms of workplace. Um, what are the key functions that they perform? So then the kind of spaces that they need, um, and then also aspirations, branding, culture. Um, which also kind of tease out what um, change management needs to take place. So, for example, if you have a very traditional company and they're used to working on one-to-one desks, as in everyone has an assigned desk, it's very hard to them, for them to get into an agile environment where you're expecting them to share the space and work um, with you know great flexibility and um, work essentially wherever they choose, but the behaviours associated with using such a space is very different. So we try to understand really where the baseline is at. And um, uh, also we do a lot of uh, occupation studies as well. So actually understanding how they utilize their space. Those occupation studies is more like observation on like existing, you know, people working and how they actually do it. Is, it, is that how you kind of include all the customer or not? The, yeah, both. So we, we, uh, <laughs> It sounds creepy, but we watch them work yes. and then take notes. Uh, so observing the behavior and um, just, you know, the kind of like what happens day to day from a almost an objective th- third party perspective. But also we do a count of actually how much of their space is utilized as a percentage over the day, over the week. Um, and it understands if you're just looking at the workplace as a um, infrastructure, how often they actually use this this investment so then that way we can help them making um if they need to make real estate decisions to so say for example if they don't really use the space effectively and most people are actually out of office because of the nature of their work they can maybe reduce their floor plate go rent somewhere with, where it's um more prime real estate have a better status i guess and um more opportunity to bring clients in and it might help elevate their brand even though cost-wise it's neutral yeah well that's really interesting so you mentioned there's like kind of four steps right so the first just to recap the first one is you take the brief you understand that the second one you kind of like replay and use all these methods design methods to shape that you know the brief and the project and give recommendations to clients so what would be the other two steps 
Yeah, so the third step would be the actual concept design, um, coming up with an idea for the space. Um, it's very important at this stage, stage for interior designers to actually develop a concept. So say, for example, it could be, it's, it could be something very vague, like, um, uh, I, I'll give it one, one really good example is a hotel I went to in, um, Hong Kong. It's like this boutique hotel. It's, um, not the fanciest in the world. It's one of those like smaller, like hole in the wall ones, but it's incredible. And the whole thing is designed around a series of photographs. This, um, this guy took of, um, a, a lake in Sweden called Lake Tuve. So it's that very Scandinavian, stark, quiet lake absolutely still misty and it looks so chilling and haunting but um it has this incredible mystery to it so then how do you convert these kind of like emotional reactions and senses to this into a physical form so for us that's what is a really interesting thing how then you take the elements of design which might be you know you've got all everything like color shape line all of those elements and principles but then you're actually cr- translating it into a physical reality a aesthetic reality where you can touch and feel it and sense it and uh bring it to life essentially it's the most incredible little hotel so how did that could you give like an example of how that hotel achieved? yeah so as you go in the whole thing was about like you with the kind of starkness of of that scandinavian lake and the icy coolness the moment you go in they've got raw concrete um barriers and it's a it's an arch so then it's incredibly raw and textural but then the floor is this amazingly dark marble with this um hazy foggy pattern going all the way through it and it's there was no directional lighting it was all all indirect lighting with strip strip led lights from on the floor so it was dark and moody and then as you go through this passageway you still haven't gone to the hotel yet you find this beautifully little um coved elevator and you go into the elevator and you come out and then the lobby is completely clad in a sheet metal and it's got these holes perforated through it in like a abstract manner with lighting in the back creating almost like sparkling effect that's random and stark against the really cold materials of that space but it was so simple and and so minimalistic there wasn't that traditional um hotel kind of reception desk it was just one square stone slab almost like a um almost like an altar kind of style, just this monolithic shape. And then the concierge would be behind it. It was all integrated, so everything just pushed in. It was remarkable. It was completely seamless after they pushed in their, like, the keyboard um, uh, trays and all of that. And um, they used lighting to create very stark uh, visual patterns on the floor just in terms of how it interacted with the space and the other elements of the space and so this it's still quite cold and mysterious and foggy but the moment you get into your room everything was kind of clean and peaceful using light colors natural materials and white walls and again there wasn't any kind of directional lighting so it didn't feel harsh it was almost like you know the crack of dawn when the light's just bleeding through the horizon the, the light in the ceiling was, uh, instead of just fitting it into like a plasterboard ceiling, it was coved. So it actually didn't have any hard edges and the light just fell 
across the surface. It was amazing. And um, there was a white bed with the most, the smoothest linen you can ever feel and a timber box in the corner of the room. And you go up to it and it's just like a, a box. You don't know what it is. It's probably the size of a mini fridge, if not bigger. But then you open it and it's like a Japanese jewelry box. It completely opens up to form your little tea, coffee area, and it's got your mini fridge and drinks. <laughs> yeah. And then it's folded out to reveal your desk and your little um, desk chair. So the whole thing was just so well considered. And I guess the more minimal it is with any kind of design, the more resolved and the more effort it's taken to kind of get to that clean design. It was great. It's making me want to go on holiday. Yeah, it just <laughs> transported me to a different space. <laughs> but yeah, it's those kind of concepts that really helps you drive the choice of materials, drives how you choose to design the space, the, the lines, um, how you how you create shapes in, in, in a space. Basically, it kind of helps you relate to the 3D space around you. You create prototypes for it? Like, are they just like miniature versions of prototypes or do you create a space that kind of brings to life some of the yeah so we use all different types of methods depending on the timeline for the project if it's really special and you have to create a product for the design so you work with an industrial designer you would absolutely create a prototype or if you have a little space easy as a cardboard model would help you understand the proportions within the space um but nowadays, too, technology and um, 3D modeling just helps you so much as well. I was just going to ask, to what extent do you try and put your mark on the stuff you do? Like, would there be any way to tell, you know, oh, yeah, Anne Lee des- designed that space? Or is it purely down to, like, it's all about the client, essentially, and you're just there to sort of facilitate their vision? Yeah, um, I-, I think there's always an element that you can put your mark into the space. Um, for most clients, it's extremely important that the function is is there, so it works how they want to. And for the average client, it doesn't go much beyond that. So so long as the design is nice and clean. Um, but just like I, I guess with with uh, say poetry, uh, you can definitely once you read a certain poem, you know it belongs to a certain poet by the way they use their phrases, by the way they shape their words, by the way they um, create sense of imagery. I think for the similarly with a designer, you can understand how they use their line or like their a preference for a certain kind of color. I mean, for me personally, I try not to have a personal style in that way um just because also it's a lot more interesting and you get to try lots of different things and um yeah i think a personal style is like quite luxurious actually <laughs> unless you're like a unless you're like a hot shop designer where everyone's after your personal look um most people do try and um try something different try something new so then what you're designing for a client is unique every time just going back to you for steps, sorry, I just keep... Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we took again, a little holiday in the middle of that. One. <laughs> yeah, I went to another world and came back. Um, <laughs> then I guess you obviously prototype, as you mentioned, and the yeah. fourth step would be obviously deliver the project. Yeah? Yeah. yeah? yeah. I was just going to ask, obviously, what that fourth step like kind of um, entails and also if there is any, or if you guys actually monitor the effectiveness of the space normally yeah 
So, um, okay, so starting with the fourth step, um, it's the construction drawing. So then our package essentially to of information that we give to the contractors or builders or manufacturers as to what needs to be created. So that includes all the construction drawings or the schedules or the specifications, that kind of thing. So we work closely with um, the project managers, the um, the mechanical engineers, the electrical engineers to make sure that everything is correct. Um, we do all the drawings as well. So then because like all the um, structural details, as even stuff as boring as like a wall, <laughs> like how a wall is constructed, we would detail all of that up. So I think going back to your point earlier about um, uh, interior decorator versus interior designer, we look at a lot of the structural details and we make sure that everything complies according to local codes and regulations as well. Um, and then after that is all delivered or checking on site that, the builders actually build what you've designed, um, making sure the detail is correct, making sure everything is to the level of um, quality that the client is after. Uh, and then just making sure that the client is happy in the space. So that's everything from just personal feedback, um, just touching base with the client regularly. But we also do um, post-occupancy evaluation. So very similar to um the early stage um, when we're just doing the workplace strategy um, but almost in reverse so asking them how they feel about the new space um, we've got using surveys um, again going back with utilization study to see if people are using the space more often mm-hmm. um, and then a lot of our work is with re- repeat customers so then the space is constantly evolving and we might need to go back to do some tweaks for them six months down the track. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of the spaces now are adaptive. So then it's just about, oh, we can shift a few things here and there. But some other people might actually discover a greater need for things. So then they might build more meeting rooms or they might reshuffle how their entrance or their client experiences, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is it painful? Because I, when I used to design like apps and websites, and then once you give them to a client, they just completely destroy them with content. <laughs> they, yeah. Is it yeah. as painful when you look at there and say, like, oh my God, what have you done? Yeah. yeah. It's a learning experience, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't control everything. And once it's out of your hands, it's the client's product. Yeah. What do you prefer? Do you prefer redesigning spaces or just coming like, you know, white canvas and doing something completely new? Yeah, I think having a white canvas and doing something completely new is often um, scary and exciting and definitely leads to more opportunities. But um, redesigning something also gives you a better appreciation of being very sympathetic to the existing way of things. So it's hard for you to bring in new behaviors or a new way to use a space or change people's perception of something rather than just starting afresh and being this is completely new for you and um working people towards that Mm -hmm. just before we wrap up and Mm. carla asks her trademark question at the end (laughs) um obviously we spoke about the the kind of hotel that you described there are there Mm. any other spaces that maybe are a bit more well known you know maybe in and around London or any other cities um, that you think are worth people checking out and you think have kind of delivered their vision in a particularly good way yeah um well I mean I think 
Uh, one really easy one to go see is the um, V&A exhibitions. I, I find that they, the ones that you, they curate and you have to pay for, um, they actually do extremely well in creating a, a very sensory experience, not just what, what the exhibits that you're looking at, physically looking at, but the whole space in which you um, explore. Um, I think both London and Sydney, where I'm from, do the open city kind of things so particular historical buildings or office spaces where is not generally open to the public they do tours occasionally so then some of these office spaces are very worth going to um i think one uh one project that i was involved in back in sydney was um we did the pwc uh client floors for sydney and melbourne so what my design director did for at the time for melbourne is that you, are you familiar with the PwC logo? How it's got the like orange and red and um, yellow squares kind of on top of each other. So part of that vision was really being strong with the brand, but then how do you communicate? Um, how do you communicate that a? Um, but also represent a very collaborative environment with both their client and users. Blah blah blah. And um, there's this remarkable staircase that goes through three three stories. Um, and it's basically these boxes completely exploded across this void. And each of these boxes are meeting rooms suspended in that space. So then it glows and you can walk on top of them. So then the the whole staircase is a very kind of um, interactive zone where, you know, the whole opportunity to bump into people, to interact with people and to see into different spaces. Meanwhile, inside those meeting rooms are, are obviously functional and you can work in them. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, looking at like lots of different spaces where vision comes to life, uh, there's go, go to, ex- go to those exhibitions basically. Oh, wow. That's, that's really good. I mean, I, I really, I really liked, um, talking to you because it's just so obvious how design as a practice, as a, you know, overarching practice has so so many similarities right because yeah yeah you know the the steps that you follow you know as you tackle a brief are very similar to what we would do i like designing something else it's just obviously the the scale is different and the 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 um the skill set is different but yeah it's surprising and you know that how you know design can cover so many things um just to I, i always ask this question and i think actually after talking to you it would be really good if you could recommend obviously you already recommended how where to go to see like good spaces and stuff but if there's any books uh, or podcasts or other resources that you can recommend to designers not necessarily to become an interior designer because obviously you have to have a form of training and experience to do that but how can they you know by reading about interior design they can then apply that to their design um jobs you know wherever they are uh i've got two books that would be very interesting they're not particularly specific to interior design but um very much to design in general um one's pattern language by christopher alexander um it is well, basically um, him and his colleagues have identified uh, what two hundred and fifty something patterns of space, and basically the the point is all of these patterns can be put in a certain order and a certain combination to achieve a certain effect to a user, and that's the pattern language. Combine different patterns, you get a different language. Um, but I I think it, it's also very much used in 
computer programming in understanding the logic of of things. Um, but yeah, that's definitely one to track track down. And also emotional design: why we love or hate everyday things by Don Norman. So he's very interesting, and he talks a lot more about the user experience of design. So after it's left the designer's hands, who's got all these ideas of like aesthetics and um, material and all of that. After that, how does the user actually just then interact with it? And he divides it into a, a visceral, behavioral, and reflective design. So why it makes so much meaning to us. But um, yeah, very general, but um, I think they were very profound to me. Cool. Awesome. We'll link those up in the, the show notes as well so people can check those out. Um, so yeah, I think that's all we had. So thank you very much for joining us. That was super interesting. Yeah. Enjoyed going to that hotel with you. Yeah, as well. thank you so much. And literally the way you describe it, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> thank you so much. Search and subscribe to Design Untangled using your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Follow us on the web at designuntangled.co.uk or on Twitter at designuntangled. Become a better designer with online mentoring at uxmentor.me.